Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. What I want us to talk about today is these two essential questions is, in what ways is the church supposed to be a family, and then what does it look like for the church to be a family, right? And so the first, to answer that question, those two questions, the first one is Jesus, he uses these kinship ties associated with the first century Palestinian values to describe the church. And so understanding the cultural context of what family meant back then is so important for us to understand how family is supposed to operate today or church is supposed to operate as a family. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 31, verse 30, or chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. This is after Jesus is teaching. He's gathering a, a large follower. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my, brother, my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And so in this context, it's important to understand the culture of the time because in this time period, first century Palestine, the most important social value of that time was your kinship ties. That was the whole identity. Your whole identity revolved around your family and which clan you belong to. Your financial status your social status, what job you would have if you were a guy, your interests, your hobbies, your, your favorite, your, your, your things that you enjoy, and your, even your friends all depended on your family. The most important social currency of that time was your family. And that's why genealogies were so important. Your worth, your value, your status, how you were viewed by others were all dependent on your family, and most importantly, your father's status. That's why genealogies follow the line of the fathers and who their son was. And that's why, just kind of a side note, that's why uh, um, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is so fascinating because he includes several women in Jesus' genealogy. And at that time, it's like, why would you include these women who are not as important as men? And so the father's social status and honor, that's what brings honor to children. That's what brings honor to you. And so it was also, so that's the first thing, the the kinship ties were most important. The other important aspect of the culture is the honor-shame culture of that time, which still exists in the Middle East, right, if you've ever been there to the Middle East. And even in Eastern cultures, and a lot of us who have immigrant families, we understand this honor-shame culture so deeply because your life 
revolves around bringing honor to your family, to your parents, and avoid bringing shame to the family. Oh, excuse me, family. Right, like Mulan. You guys watch Mulan, right? Bring honor to my family. There's a whole song about it. And she, she's, she knows that her enrolling as a woman into the military would bring dishonor and shame, but she felt she had a duty to the country. And so in order for uh, people at that time period to bring honor and avoid bringing shame, there was, there was two ways. First, for the male, the way that they brought honor to the family was by carrying on their family legacy. They're the ones who would continue the family name through the work, through their progeny, through their children, and through upkeeping their wealth. And so sons had a very vital, important role in maintaining that honor. Daughters, on the other hand, they didn't necessarily do anything for the honor of their family, but they first of all had to avoid shame by you know, becoming impure sexually and being a nice, wonderful virgin bride for their husband, but also, their way of bringing honor to the family was by marrying into an honorable, of equal or even higher honorable status. If they marry someone below their family status, very shameful, right? And so knowing this cultural context of the kinship ties being the most important social value, as well as the honor-shame culture, we can see that what Jesus says here in this passage was quite shocking and controversial. And the people who hear it, not only the people who were there with him, but the other first century Palestinian Jews who were reading the Gospels would have been shocked as well. Because this story not only is in Mark, it's in Matthew and it's in Luke. So it was a widespread story. And so when his family, his mother and his brothers, his blood ties, the most important family tie, the most important social aspect of his life, when they call for him, when they say, hey, we're here for you, his responsibility, his duty was to drop what he was doing and be the good son and go tend to his family's needs. And what's even more important is right before this passage, the reason why his mother and brothers came to Jesus was because he was being accused, literally right before this, he was being accused by the religious leaders of being possessed by Satan. He was being accused by the religious leaders. These are the religious leaders of the time. The ones who had the most political authority were saying, Jesus is possessed by Satan. I don't know about you, but that's not good. If my child was being accused of being possessed by Satan... I would say, oh, no, <laughs> let's go put a stop to this. So in context here, I think what his family is doing is they're trying to say, Jesus, come. Like, we need to stop this shame coming to our family. And so that's even more of a reason for Jesus to drop what he's doing and to go to his family. But what's worse is Jesus, when he is told that his mother and brothers are looking for him, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Holy moly. If they were, if, you know, imagine the people who are around him like, are you okay, Jesus? Are you okay? What's going on? 
But, you know, I think we have kind of a misconception of who Jesus is, especially in our culture. We think Jesus is like this kind of hippie, you know, he's got a beard, he's got long hair, he's like, peace, yo, love, just love, guys, right? We see him as this, like, calm and just, like, maybe a little stoned, you know, like, oh, yeah, just love, guys. But Jesus was really, really intense. And I'd imagine if he, if we saw him, we'd be like, oh, my gosh, because he's just, like, in your face, like, him asking, like, who are my mother and brothers? It's not this, like, just meek, oh, who? You know, it's this, like, who? It's a challenge. He is rejecting some of the cultural norms of the time. One of the most important social aspects of the time, he's questioning it. But in doing so, he is showing how we ought to view the church. He is saying that he's rewiring our concept of loyalty to use their understanding of loyalty to their family to then bring it to the church. He's saying, take those concepts of how important your family is to your life and now apply it to this church that I am establishing. He's saying, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so he's saying that the church should operate in the same way that a family in the first century should operate. And so, in what ways is the church a family? Well, we have kinship ties. We have kinship ties. We are part of a family. Not only did Jesus restore our relationship to God when he died on the cross and took our sins away, he also restored relationships with other people. Not only is your relationship with God renewed and strengthened and made pure, but your relationship with fellow broken humanity, men and women, that relationship was also restored when Jesus died on the cross. Because if you think about it, not only were, were your sins done to God forgiven, but your sins done to other people and other people's sins done to you were also forgiven on that cross. Man, how powerful is that? And so as a result, our identity is in our Father. Just like in the first century, how their identities rested on the, the status of their Father, so our identity is founded on God the Father. You and I, we have worth only in the fact that we profess Jesus as Lord and Savior who died for our sins and resurrected so that we could possess and inherit the Holy Spirit. And now we call God our Abba Father. And nothing, no social status or marker can ever change that, either for better or for worse. And so we now have a new established loyalty to our church family. And we are united. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4. And you know, Jesus, he, he's pretty controversial. I'll show you another verse here. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And knowing how important family was in that time period, you can see how challenging 
that statement is. But what he's saying is there's nothing that you ought to be tied to in this life because the only thing that is important is our relationship with God and how that establishes a new family. Even the, the most important social relationships that we have today, right? The, the, the name dropping sometimes. We're like, oh, yeah, we know that guy. Like, oh, I had dinner with that guy. Or, oh, I have these things next to my name, these little letters next to my name that I've earned, all these accomplishments. I went to this school. Yes, we were Bruins, you know. We have that tie. But the thing that is more deeper than any of that is how are we related to God and that he is our father. And so, I mean, just like this is an indictment of my own heart too. Can we truly say that the church is our family in the same way that first century Jews in Palestine called their family family. And I, I'm challenged with that every day too. One objection that you might have is, well, does that mean we abandon our biological family? I don't think it's, the answer is yes. I, I think no. I think rather than kind of dividing, I think we change our identity marker and fix our loyalty to other disciples of Christ and we offer the same, if not even deeper, sacrificial love to our church family as we would our biological family. You know, I think about my brother, who was a very atypical older brother. You know, he, he's four years older than me, so he, he started driving a lot earlier than me, obviously. And a lot of my friends' older brothers were kind of bullies to their younger brothers, right? If you're a younger brother and you were bullied by your older brother, you understand. Or if you were the older brother and you bullied your younger brother, you understand too. But he, you know, when I was in middle school, he would constantly drive my friends and I to the movie theaters. And I didn't think that was weird until one time my friend was like, your brother takes you to these movie theaters? I was like, yeah. They're like, oh my gosh, my brother just kicks me. I was like, oh. You know, he, when uh, my wife and I, we lived in like Monrovia in the San Gabriel Valley, and he was off in like West LA, we would, he would try to come as often as he could to, to have dinner with us. At every single move that my wife and I had, and we had a lot of moves, he was there helping us. Even when we moved to Bakersfield, he drove up with us, spent the night, and then um, helped us. Um, and when Aria was born, he drove up and spent a few days with us. Um, but you know, he has that loyalty. He's the older brother. And, you know, obviously he wouldn't do that for me if, you know, he wasn't my brother. And in fact, like thinking about it, like he and I are very similar, but we're also very different, <laughs> right? I don't think I'd be friends with him if he wasn't my brother. But the fact that he does these things for me is because he's my brother. And so I think, can that same sacrificial love exist in the church? Right? Or another um, objection would be some of us, a lot of us have a lot of baggage with family. I know there's a lot of people who've had traumas, hurts, inconveniences, different pains from the people we call our family. And so sometimes it's hard to call other people family or brothers or sisters because we have so much loaded conflict with those words. And this is where there's a beautiful paradigm shift that can occur in our lives because we can see how the family ought to actually operate. It's a beautiful thing when we have an intimate connection with each other and we can truly call each other brothers and sisters. 
And so the church ought to have these deep sacrificial relationships because we have something that goes beyond even blood, right? We have the Holy Spirit and we have the love that emanates from Jesus' sacrificial love. We have seen how love can be demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Though he was perfect, he became sin for those who knew no sin. And he brought salvation, redemption, and resurrection to his enemies, to his lost souls. That's the love that we show each other is the proof that we are his disciples, as Jesus said in John 13. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. How? If you're practicing social justice, will, they, will the world know that you are disciples because you are getting into politics or because you, are, you have wealth, because you have done all these things, because you've built a big church? No. He says, you, by this, everyone know you are my disciples if you love one another. But living as a church, living church as a family, that's a, it's a very messy. <laughs> because just like family is messy, right? Family is messy. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, family is messy. Um, you know, my, my wife and I, we've been gracious enough, or we've been blessed enough, I should say, to be living with um, her parents for this past almost year after we moved back down from Bakersfield. And they let us live rent-free. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord in SoCal. Um, they, they're very helpful in helping watch our daughter, very generous with us, and they sacrifice so much, not only with their material goods, but with their bodies. And, you know, what kind of, fam- no, what kind of person would do that unless it were your family, right? Just like our friends wouldn't be like, yeah, come live with us for almost a year with your one-year-old daughter. And so why can't the church exhibit this kind of sacrificial love? Even though, yes, there should be some prudence and wisdom, right? We shouldn't just let all of our guards down. But think about the early church. People were selling their possessions and giving to the church everything that they earned from that so that no one in the church would be in need. They sacrificed so that no one in their family, in their clan, in their church would be in need. You know, my wife and I, we had one kind of like a a season in this church in Burbank where we kind of saw a glimpse of that and how deeply people were living in this community, community, excuse me, where we saw literally members of that church, people with families living in the same house. Like what? There were like, five different families living in this one house in Glendale. Um, and, you know, one time, there, this one husband and one wife, they were going through very, very challenging marital problems. And instead of, you know, they were on the brink of separation of divorce. Uh, instead of, you know, leaving the church, what, what they did was what some of the members offered for that husband to live with them. And so he lived with them for a few months while they got the, the necessary counseling and and means to restore their relationship. I thought, wow, that's what kind of church does that? Usually when a marriage goes that way, people just leave that church and go to separate churches. Right? But they were they were like, no, you are staying with us. You are going to live with us. She will continue living there and we're going to get you the help you need. And they worked it out. And they've been uh, together for for many many years now and and it's, they've been, it's been beautiful to see that. 
And so understanding the first century Palestinian cultural context can help us understand what it means for the church to be a family because that was the most, social, most important social relationship. But it's challenging. And it's even more challenging because the next part of this, what this looks like as a church family, is that he proclaims that this new church family all are equally loved and valued by God himself. And so when he says in verse 35, when he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother, he is showing us what the family looks like, especially when he intentionally includes the word sister there, whereas before it only said brothers. Because remember, the ma- this is a patriarchy, right? Males were the most important um, gender of the time. And now he's saying sister. He's including sister. Jesus was one of the first feminists of all time, you guys. He's including females into his family. And so as I mentioned before, you know, women, one of the only ways that they could actually bring honor into their society was by marrying an honorable man and producing sons. And they had very little authority. I mean, they had a lot of authority behind the scenes, a lot of influence to their husbands, but in in the public eye, very little authority. I mean, even in in the Middle East, this still exists today. You guys know after America pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan, you know that women can't get higher education anymore, and they started closing down education after sixth grade for women, for for females. Even in 2017, was the law that was passed in Saudi Arabia for women to be able to drive alone. This is 2017, you guys. And so this, this uh, no, nothing against the culture or anything, but I'm just saying that that kind of mindset still exists in parts of the world. And even in the first century Palestine, women's testimonies were not considered valid in a court of law. And so that's why when Jesus or when the, the women were the first ones to see that the tomb was empty, that also being in the gospel doesn't make sense in a cultural context. Why would the gospel writers say that women were the first ones at the tomb when their testimony is meaningless? And so for the vast majority of human history, women were seen as second-class citizens. And most civilizations, majority of history, has been a patriarchy. And so Jesus, he's causing a ruckus here. He's, He's not only saying that he's questioning cultural values of family responsibilities, but he's also including one of the most socially marginalized people group of all time. He's saying that I am bringing honor and value into my family, these women who have been seen as lowly and not valued for most of history. In the family of God, there is no social status. We are all equally loved and accepted by God. And so what does that look like in a church? Well, I know I don't do this very well, and so this is a challenge for me because I like to build up comfort in my life, right? The metaphorical picket fence lines, you know, that I like to build up in my wall uh, where I like to have my own independence and autonomy because 
when we live as a church, as a family, a lot of those boundaries are crossed. And rightfully, we get upset. Because think about when your family crosses those boundary lines, right? It's like, oh, how dare you, mom? (laughs) But when we live as a church, as a family, those boundary lines will be crossed all the time because we're living in each other's lives. But you know what? I learned how to place boundaries, but I've also learned that sometimes it's okay for those boundaries to be crossed. And not protecting my time and my own well-being for the sake of sacrificing, because that's what agape love is, right? Agape love, the highest form of love, is sacrificial love. And sacrificial love means you love even when it's inconvenient, when it is most inconvenient. And so we as a church, we got to ask, you know, who are the socially marginalized and how are we allowing them to be a part of our family? In that, in that time period, Jesus' day and age, tax collectors who were seen as traitors to their people. He hung out with prostitutes, the uneducated, like the fishermen, the blue-collar workers, the handicapped, the homeless, the people who are marginalized in life. And I don't want to speak with authority about who these socially marginalized people are in today's, because that's filled with controversy. But what I will say is that, you know, we, I grew up in a church where, you know, men wore suits, to church services where we didn't really talk about our conflicts. We, we tried to put up a, a very, you know, united front and, you know, children didn't act disobedient. But that's not life, right? You know, sometimes when I have people over, you know, sometimes my wife likes to clean and like, oh, we have to make the house look nice and pretty. And I'm like, yes, but that's not how we live, <laughs> you know? We sometimes let the dishes pile up. You know, and it's okay to let people see the messiness, right? No, no. We need to definitely clean and vacuum as often as we can. Sorry, honey. Um, But church is messy, and it will be messy. I mean, there's no church that has existed in life that had no problems. And in fact, the ones that practice this church as family mindset are the messiest of them because they're living in each other's lives. And what that does is it brings conflict I mean, think about the person you have the most conflict with. It's probably the people you live with. Growing up, it was probably your your siblings or your parents. If you're married, it's probably your spouse or your kids. It's because you're living with them 24-7, and they annoy you because you're a broken person, and they're broken people. And when we as a church live together, it's messy. And when people, especially of different backgrounds, then come together and for a call for unity— that's also going to be messy because we all have our baggage that we bring. But how beautiful it is when people of different societies, different backgrounds come together as a family and no one has greater importance than each other. The poor has the same status as the wealthy. The ex-convict has the same status as the righteous. The disabled has the same status as the healthy. The immigrant has the same status as the citizen. We're all united. And family is messy. And it's beautiful when it's messy because that's when we can start really calling each other brother and sister, right? My brother and I, we, even though he's done all these things, we've also had our share of tiffs growing up, and we've had a lot of fights. And he's probably the one who's seen me the most angriest in life, and we've had, like, literal fist fights before. 
But that's because we're brothers. That's because we've invested in each other's lives and we've hurt each other and we've basically lived this tight-knit community. And it's challenging when those conflicts occur, but that's how we grow. That's how we love. Jesus says that that's, that's how the world will know we're disciples is when we love each other and we love each other. How can we just love each other when things are good, right? Because things will not always be good. And, you know, it's so sad because I've, one, of the, one of the things that the most important or one of the most common reasons why people leave the church is when they say they've seen something scandalous occur at church or someone at church hurt them. And I've seen so many, you know, you've seen so many scandals occur in the church. And it's so sad because we're broken people. But we can experience God's love and presence as it's supposed to be like because that's what heaven's going to be like. And when we truly live in that community of love, not only is it transformational for you as an individual, but it's transformational for the church, the community, as Pastor Scott was talking about, praying for the city and other spheres of influence. It changes culture. It changes lives. Because against all odds in the first century, I mean, Jesus died. He literally died. It was a public execution. You know what happened to other people who called themselves messiahs before Jesus and they were killed by their oppressors? Right, you don't know because no one's heard their name ever again. And he died. He literally was executed. But for some reason, the church blossomed. It grew. It went through the ends of the earth. It went through all different countries because people experienced his love so deeply and shared his love to others in the church. And they, in the first century, if you read some of the early church fathers' writings, they had a very high standard of spiritual formation, a holy living. They spoke against sexual immorality. They called out sin, and they were what we would deem judgmental. And you know, some of us, we, myself included, I don't like conflict. And so I don't like to call out other people's sin. And I'm like, oh, what if I hurt their feelings? Or what if they don't like me anymore? But for some reason, when these early church fathers write it, wrote, write it, wrote about, you know, calling out sin, the church didn't die out. People didn't say, oh, these Christians are so judgmental. And, if you, and, and there's just as much sexual perversion in the early first century as there is today. You know, don't get it wrong. Don't say that, oh, today in this world we're all crazy. This is, these sins have occurred all throughout the entirety of humanity. And when it's called out in the early first century, still people flock to the church. Even when it was called out, the church still grew. It's because... I honestly believe it's because when they were able to call out sin, they called it out in a place of love because people were living such deeply transformative lives. And they sacrificed for each other so deeply that they saw what true love was. So let us strive to be a family that sees each other as equally loved and accepted and be the light to a very dark world. And so, like I said, family is a loaded concept. And with people of the first century, Palestine included, there was so much baggage involved. And for those of us who profess Christ as Lord and Savior, we are sons and daughters 
of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have been adopted into his family. And so let's love those who call each other, who call their Christ Lord and Savior as brothers and sisters as well. Let's pledge our loyalty, sacrifice, share in the joys and sorrows, bring honor and avoid shame to our family, and extend love to those who are not in our social circles, and include the marginalized into the family of Christ. Let's pray together.